songs, but so try not to think about all that. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, we're going to pick it up today in verse 11, but we want to just kind of recap, at least from verse 1, to give us the context here. Because we've got three, three verses we want to look at today. And those three verses are the conclusion of this entire passage. They are the conclusion. They are the capstone, if you will, on what started way back in chapter 3, verse 7. And now we're going to finish in chapter 4, verse 13. Remember the first warning passage. This is the second one. The first one is do not drift away, right? Do not neglect your salvation. Do not let your ship of life drift right on past the harbor of salvation. This passage is about do not fail to enter his rest. Do not fail to enter his rest. And so let us be mindful again of who this is that the author of Hebrews is addressing it to. These are professing Jewish believers who are tempted to fall away from their profession of Christ as their Lord and Savior and go back to Judaism, go back to the old covenant under the law. And the overarching theme in the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. Christ is superior. That what you have in Jesus Christ is far better than what you had before. That what you have here now in Christ is the fuller revelation of what was being pointed to in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament was pointing to the cross. We're in the New Testament. We look back at the cross, right? We look back at as the cross as the pivotal point in God's redemptive story. The Old Testament was looking forward to it. So they have been encouraged twice already in this warning passage to hold fast, cling to the truth, cling to their profession of faith, hold fast, stand firm. And then he reminded them that those who do remain give evidence that they are truly the partakers of Christ. Those who remain through the trials, through the difficulty, through the different tribulations, through the persecution, through the hard things in life. Those are the true believers. Those are the ones. Which is why he says in verse 1, Therefore, based upon all those who did not enter into his rest because of, his un- because of their unbelief, he says, let us fear. He's not talking to the believers there, right? Believers have reverential fear. He's talking to unbelievers. What are they supposed to be afraid of? They should be afraid that because his promised rest still remains, they could yet miss it yet again. It's available even now to them. It's available even now for us today. And he's warning them and us, do not miss this rest. Well, what was the cause of their missing the rest? It was unbelief. Remember in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 3, right? What was the reason they couldn't enter the rest? It was because of disobedience. What was that disobedience? Unbelief. Verse 19. What? Was the cause of their unbelief? Well, we saw that beginning in verse 2. Although they heard the good news, you can see it there in your text, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. So although they heard the good news, it it was to no profit for them. They heard this wonderful news that they could enter God's rest if they just 
united, if they just believed, if they just trusted God and his word, his promises to them, they could have entered his rest. But because they didn't unite their faith in hearing the good news, that means they heard all they needed to hear in order to enter into the promised land. They heard everything they needed to hear. There was nothing missing. There was no missing parts. There was no missing revelation. They heard everything they needed to do. If they would have just united what they heard with faith, they could have entered the promised land. But because they did not, it was of no profit to them at all. They heard this wonderful news of salvation, but because they didn't believe, because they didn't trust, it did not profit them at all. Verse 3 then he adds this little caveat. He says, and verse 3, remember, is a positive and negative. Hey, those who did this, entered. Those who didn't, didn't. And then he adds, adds, adds this little caveat at the end. Although his works, or God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. Remember, he inserts that phrase in there because the author of Hebrews wants to make a very important point about entering God's rest beginning in verse 4. What is that he says in verse 4? For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So in verse 4, to demonstrate that God's rest has been available from the very foundations of the world, the author of Hebrews now takes us back, clear back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And his point is, is that God's rest has always been available to those in every generation that would unite their faith with belief in God and his promises. Remember, we looked at that pretty extensively. God didn't rest because he was tired. He's not like us, right? He didn't need the physical rest. But yet he ordained a physical rest. But even then, even that physical rest that he ordained was a picture of a spiritual rest that would be available. And to emphasize that point, he shows us how it was available in four different time periods. Remember in verse 5, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Now here he quotes Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a psalm of David. But it was written a thousand years after the wilderness wanderings. Now why would he do that? He's trying to show that the author is saying, listen, this rest that was available from creation is also available to the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, and it's still available in David's time a thousand years later. And verse 3 tells us that it's still available today to those who were listening to this epistle, this little church in Hebrews, and guess what? It's still available yet today. This same rest, which is why in verse 6, he says, therefore, because of all that, because it's been available, he's just showed you four different times in history, all through these different times that it's been available. He says, why it's still available today, enter into it. Enter into it, just like you could. Look at verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, notice it's for some to enter into it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter. Why? Because of disobedience. See, that rest is still available today to be able to enter into it, just like it has been available through all since creation. But it's only profitable. It's only available to those who will unite this good news 
with faith. That's who it's for. And faith is the key to being able to enter into his rest. Faith in what? Faith in God and his promises. Throughout human history, only those who heard the good news, only those who heard the good news and united it with their faith were able to enter his rest. And those who did not unite the good news with faith are called disobedient in verse 5. Disobedient. Why disobedient? Because they refused to believe God and chose instead to go astray in their own hearts. They had a different plan. They had a different way in which they would enter God's rest. One they thought was more suitable for them. One that fit their lifestyle a little bit better. One that they agreed with as the way to be able to enter God's rest. But remember the text told us they did not know his ways. Why did they not know his ways? Because they decided that their own path was a far better path. And that still happens today, doesn't it? There are those who won't surrender to Christ because they have this inkling, this feeling, this they thought this through in their own limited, finite thinking compared to the infinite mind of God that they have a better plan for entering God's rest. They don't necessarily like everything the Bible has to say about what it takes to enter his rest. They don't want to have to surrender. They got a better way. They did not know his ways. And the disobedience he's talking here isn't that they just didn't accomplish some act he wanted them to do. The disobedience here is tied back to their unbelief, which is why the author closes out his admonition with a plea once again, as he has many times throughout this, beginning in chapter 3. Respond in faith while God's gracious offer to enter his rest still remains. Do it today, today, today. You see that okay, seven or eight times in this warning. Today. Do it today while it still remains. Today. Well, then in verse 8, he anticipates their question, their, their objection to what he's been saying, because he knows how they're thinking in their mind. They would have been thinking, hey, 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 wait a second. What about Joshua? Didn't he enter the promised land? Didn't he receive God's rest? Well, Joshua did indeed lead the Israelites into the promised land, just as God had promised them. So it would seem at first blush here that Joshua would have fulfilled the rest that God had promised. But if that's true, the author points out, then why does God speak about entering his rest on another day? I mean, if he fulfilled what God had promised, why is there still a rest that remains? That's his question. Specifically, if that promise was already fulfilled, then why, in verse 7, does God speak through David a long time after the wilderness wanderings? Look at that, verse 7. David, after so long a time. So what the author of Hebrews is driving at is even though they entered the land, they still did not complete the conquest as God instructed. And all you have to do is take a quick read through the book of Judges, and you realize the continuing disastrous results of their disobedience. Literally, what's the theme of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the definition of disobedience. Well, 
which means they still not, did not find the rest that they were looking for spiritually. They did receive some rest physically, but it was just for a short period of time. And yet another oppressor. Remember, God kept allowing another oppressor to come in to, to get them back into obedience. But there's still a rest that remains. What rest is that? Verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest. Remember the word here used for Sabbath rest is not the typical word for Sabbath, and it's not the word for rest that's been used all the way through this whole passage. It's a different rest that's only used here. And this is a rest that's different because the, the previous word in Greek, kataposis, means to cease from activity. That's not what this word means. This is a rest for your soul. This is the kind of rest that Jesus offered in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. That kind of rest. Notice who it is that can enter the Sabbath rest that still is available today. Well, we see that at the end of verse 9. Who is it? For it's the people of God. Who are the people of God that actually enter into his rest? Well, it can't just be all the Israelites because, remember, many of them died in the wilderness. So just being an Israelite didn't get you into God's promised rest, did it? It's for the people of God. Who are the people of God that actually enter his, enter his rest? The people of God are all those who have united their faith with God and his promises. That's who the people of God are. In other words, it's God's own people who will share in God's own rest. Those who enjoy this rest will be believers. In the Old Testament, it would have been those who approach God through faith in him and his promises. Today, on this side of the cross, we still enter his rest through faith in God and his promises through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, to demonstrate that this Sabbath rest, the author provides an example of what that looks like for all who have entered his rest today. Look at verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now I can tell you, can I just be uh, give you a pastor's honest uh, assessment here? This verse took me about three days. Because this one section here, for the one who enters his rest. Some people think that's Christ. But uh, I don't think so. Not that Christ is not the means or the avenue, but that's not specifically who he's talking about. At the very core of the Sabbath rest is that we stop trusting in our own works to save us, and we begin to trust in the saving work of Christ's atoning work on the cross to save us. Christ's atoning work on the cross made it possible for believers to trust him instead of their own works. The new covenant through Christ allows them access to this rest now, but not fully. There's yet a heavenly rest that remains for us yet down the road. This is the rest, the spiritual rest, that God has demonstrated for us from the very beginning. That's the kind of rest. It's God's rest that he was pointing to way back in Genesis chapter 2. That is his rest. And we... Enter into it by faith as we are connected with Christ and his atoning work on the cross. We 
enter into his rest. It's a spiritual rest that God has demonstrated for us. Resting in his finished work, not our own work. It is a rest that we enter. His rest, not our rest. The one who has truly entered God's rest has set aside striving in the flesh and has trusted the work of God has finished, is finished through Christ. And only those who truly believe that by faith enter his Sabbath rest. And that rest for the soul is still available today. Still there. It still remains today. Who's it for? It's for all those who will hear the good news and unite it with their faith. Now, having said all that, we come to the final few verses this morning. Look at verse 11. Therefore, now how many times have we seen that in this warning passage? Like the third or fourth time, right? He just made another point. Just summarized. Now he's going to put another therefore because he just got done explaining all of that from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way up. So these final verses are the capstone, they're the summary. Therefore, after clearly demonstrating that this Sabbath rest, God's rest, is still available today for the people of God, as well as clearly demonstrating that entrance into his rest cannot be achieved through their own works, he now tells them that they must be diligent to enter that rest. Now, in English, that seems like the author of Hebrews is talking out of both sides of his mouth, doesn't it? He says, hey, don't strive on your own works to try and get into this rest. The next verse, be diligent to enter that rest. But the word diligent, the Greek word here means to be eager, to make haste. That's what it means. It's an admonition. He's, uh, he's admonishing them to not let God's rest passively slip by, to be active about it. It's the opposite of drifting, which is what he described in the first warning passage in Hebrews chapter 2. This is the complete opposite of that. His point is, is that our faith should never be passive. Did you know that? Your faith is not passive. It's not like everything just kind of acts upon you and you're like, okay, faith has got it. Faith has got it. It's all good. Faith has got it. No, faith is active. In other words, there's an aspect of our faith to which we actively engage it. Our faith is always under attack from the enemy. Always. The enemy does not take a day off. There's never a time when he ceases from striving to try and make you abandon your faith. Don't imagine for one minute that you are not always under attack spiritually. And if we're not diligent, if we're not eager, if we're not giving quick attention to the exercise of applying our faith, we will not enter that promised rest. Do you know that? Well, how can we diligently give eager attention to our faith and actively apply it, but not have it be a work in which we achieve it? Seems kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? Well, as paradoxical as that sound, we actually apply our faith with all eagerness through submission. 
Now, that's not a word we like very much in today's vernacular. But what it means theologically is that we stop striving to earn salvation through our own efforts. And we eagerly apply our faith to depending on God and his promises. Isn't that exactly what the author of Hebrews has been telling us all along? Those who were disobedient, those who went astray, those who did not unite their faith to his good news did not enter his rest. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own way to his rest. And that became evident when the very first testing of their faith happened. The very first testing, they abandoned God, they quit trusting in his promises, and they said, hey, I got this. We'll handle this ourselves. Why don't we just pack them and head back to Egypt? That was their plan. Listen, beloved, we either trust God to save us or we trust ourselves to save us. You can't have it both ways. If you think that you can enter his rest by your own works, by your own standard, by your own righteousness, You are eternally mistaken. You are mistaken in a way that has eternal consequences. Just like those in this little church in Hebrews, those on this side of the cross, us today, we must trust in Christ and his atoning work on the cross if we are to enter into his rest. But what happens to us if we do not trust in God? If we do not trust in his promises to us through Christ. We'll look at the end of verse 11. He says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. That word fall in the original language means a final fall. It doesn't mean, hey, you got tripped up. It means you fell and you never got back up. By failing to trust God fully in his promises, we become disobedient and we fail to enter his rest, and a rest that is eternal, incidentally. And just like the Israelites became disobedient when they failed to trust God and believe in his promises to enter the promised land, they became disobedient because of their unbelief, remember, at the end of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. But unlike them, we are to enter God's rest by faith in him. And that faith is a gift from him through his grace. Keep your place in Hebrews. I think you know where I'm going. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Many of you probably even know this by heart. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, lest any man boast, boast, but by his grace. Humbly coming to the realization that we are unable to save ourselves by our own works. By faith, we rest in Christ's finished work on the cross as the basis of our salvation. It is by God's grace alone that we enter this glorious rest, this Sabbath rest. And that grace is applied to us through faith, which is a gracious gift of God. Isn't that amazing? What a great God we serve. And when we unite that faith together with the hearing of the good news, we enter into his rest that is eternal, that can never be taken away. 
How do we unite our faith together with the good news? The true good news, the good news that is from God, is the revelation that comes to us through his word. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Literally, in the Greek, literally it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing a message about Christ. We would call that the gospel. So, the means by which we enter his rest is through faith, which is a gracious gift from God. As we diligently apply and believe the word of God, which is only possible as we yield to the Holy Spirit who empowers us and illuminates the text and enlightens us and opens our eyes, and we believe in the word of God. But there's something very unique about the word of God. Not only is it the means by which our faith is diligently applied to his rest, it's also the means by which the true intentions of our hearts are measured as well. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 12, back in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Verse 12 and 13 in the original language are actually one sentence, which becomes evident as you walk through this. So the word of God, that's logos there, is not the Jesus here in John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. It, the word of God's, uh, the word here is God's spoken or God's written word that's found in the Old and New Testaments. It is indeed God's revelation of himself to us. There's a very strong connection between the last verse, verse 11, and this verse. Because no one can enter into God's rest except those whom the word of God has pierced their very soul. And that can only happen in its fullest sense through the complete revelation of God that is found in his son. Which the author of Hebrews pointed out to us in the very first verse of this epistle. Do you remember that? Remember what he said in Hebrews 1.1? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us how? In his son or by his son or through his son. The word of God has been prominent from the very beginning of this epistle. There's numerous examples from the scriptures, especially Psalm 95. If you were to go back from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and go through, look how many times it says, and God said, or he said, or the Holy Spirit said. What is the purpose of that? Why is that so important? Listen, these professing believers here in Hebrews were struggling in their faith because of this immense persecution that they were under. And they were tempted to go back to Judaism to relieve that pressure. Why? Should they sacrifice so much for Christ? That's what they're asking themselves. Why do I have to give up everything? Why do I have to be excommunicated, if you will, from my own village, from my own people? Why can't I worship in the synagogue with my brothers here? Why can't I shop in the market? Why are my kids kicked out of all the rabbinical schools? Why Why do I have to suffer so much for Jesus? 
You see, the answer to that question is found in these words spoken through David in Psalm 95, nearly a thousand years after the wilderness wanderings. You see, the words that David spoke in Psalm 95 were not irrelevant to them in Hebrews. They can't just look back and go, okay, well, you know, that was for the Israelites, okay? You know, promised land. That was David and David's reign. What about us? What about us now? What about, how do these words apply to us? And the author of Hebrews is saying, they're not irrelevant to you now. They're applicable to you now, just as they were to the people who were hearing it then. Why? Because the words that David spoke are God's words. They are God's words. And it's through God's word and his belief and your belief in them that your eternal destiny is explicitly bound. Which is why the author of Hebrews reminds them from the very beginning of this epistle that God spoke long ago through the prophets, but in these last days, he's speaking through his son. Where do we find this revelation from the son? We find it in the word of God. Notice the five things in verse 12 that are said about God's word here in our text. First, it's alive. It's living. Second Timothy 3.16, right? That it's, uh, all Scripture is what? God breathed. That's theos pneumatos. Sounds better in Greek, doesn't it? Theos pneumatos. It's God breathed. It exudes the very character of God. It is the very essence of God, captured for us in written form. It is God's self-revelation of himself to us so that we may know him. And because God is alive, his word is a living word. And because it's a living word, it causes things to happen when united with faith through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What, is, what happens to us? It convicts us. It exhorts us. It admonishes us. It encourages us. It edifies us. I could go on and on. Secondly, it is active which could also be translated powerful. God's not something, God's word is not something you can hear and then just passively ignore it. It does something to us when we hear it or we read it. It reveals to us as we, who we truly are. No false pretenses, no hidden mask. It opens up our minds and enlightens us to the truth. It actively, powerfully transforms us into the image of his son. Third, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. This is, this is a word picture of a Roman soldier again. One of the things he carried was a double-edged sword. It's the sharpest and most lethal battle element he carried. And God's word penetrates us like that, like a double-edged sword. Separating truth from lies, separating right from wrong, separating godliness from ungodliness. Fourth, God's word is piercing. It pierces us to our very soul. It pierces through the stony casing around our hearts. It divides that which is indivisible. It pierces through to judge even our thoughts, and even the intentions of our heart. It, 
what we think is secret is an open book and is laid out for inspection by the piercing power of his word. How many times have you read God's word or heard God's word and go, oh, that cuts me to the core. That pierces my very soul. Unless you think for one moment that you're exempt from the living, active, penetrating, piercing power of his word, then our next verse leaves no question to the extent and power of his word. Look at verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. That includes you and I. No creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Number five, God's word is discerning. There is no one that can hide from God. There's not one thought that can be hidden from his piercing view before whom we will all have to give an account. God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart. The words here are quite vivid. That word open means to be naked or exposed. No protection. Laid bare. That word laid bare describes the grip of a wrestler as he pins the person back and exposes their neck. That word picture reminds us that we cannot hide from God because he sees all of our guilt. We are totally exposed by his word. You know, with all that being said, I'm always amazed at how many people think they're judging the Bible when the exact opposite is what's really happening. Many people claim to be Christians. But when the word of God penetrates their hearts, when it convicts them about something they're doing, when it admonishes them for a, for a, a lifestyle, for the things and decisions they've made that they know are not God-honoring, not God-glorifying, how do they respond? They respond with anger and hostility. How dare you, God, say, I can't do what I want to do. They're repulsed by the idea that God would convict them of something in their life that's pleasing to them, but not pleasing to him. They can't fathom that. But their attitudes towards the word of God are their attitudes toward God. Because you cannot separate one from the other. The two are linked eternally. The word of God is simply the self-revelation of God to us. We cannot simply divorce one from the other every time we're convicted about some sin in our life. To do so really shows the hard-heartedness of our own hearts toward God, isn't it? That's what really it shows. It exposes our own attitude. When you reject the word of God, you are rejecting God's revelation of himself to us. When you reject the word of God, you are rejecting God. You don't get to separate the two. Listen, Jesus came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. But 
Keep your place here in Hebrews 4, but flip over to John chapter 12 for just a second, would you? John chapter 12, the Gospel of John. Because this is normally what I hear when I'm sharing this with somebody. Isn't Jesus love? Doesn't it say that Jesus came in the world not to condemn but to save it? Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings or my words has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. Unfortunately, many Christians divorce the Bible from Jesus. They say, I don't need theology. I don't need doctrine. I don't need to read my Bible. I just need Jesus. What an incredibly misguided statement that is. Christ cannot be divorced from the Scriptures because everything we know of him comes from the Scriptures. Listen, all these professing believers listening in this little church in Hebrews were to stop and realize all that has been said in this warning passage. All of that happened from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way up through now. And they should not think for a moment that they could hide from God all of their innermost thoughts and intentions, nor any of their discouragements, nor any of their unbelief. They should not think for a moment that they could present themselves to God in any other way than what they truly are. They have heard God's word through the prophets. They have heard God's word through Moses. They have heard God's word through the law and now more fully through his son. And the author is warning them not to think that the disobedience to his promises given by his son in his word will pass by his sight. That he won't notice the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. He's urging them, he's pleading with them to not think that they will not receive the same judgment of those in the wilderness wanderings whose evil, unbelieving hearts left them dead in the wilderness apart from his rest. And since all men are responsible to God and he is the one who cannot be deceived by human actions or human words or human deeds, and since he sees through all attempts of hypocritical faith, it's fitting that he ends this second warning on this note. Beloved, since nothing escapes the observation of God, we cannot hope to achieve his promised rest on any other terms than his. There is no way but his way. I am the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. We are all exposed for what we really are. There's nothing in our thoughts, even in the intentions of our heart, that will escape the view of God. Nothing. We are all exposed for who we truly are. We are all laid bare with our necks exposed because we have heard the good news of his word.
And that sobering thought prepares the way for the next part of this epistle, believe it or not. Because in the next section, we're going to see the purpose and the effectiveness of the high priestly work of Christ. The fact that nothing can be hidden from God, not even our thoughts and intentions, makes it all the more pressing the need for someone who will intercede on our behalf. Amen? If God can see every thought, every intention of our hearts, every disobedience, every, every hint of unbelief, if all of that and none of that is hidden from his sight, we need an intercessor on our behalf, do we not? Thanks be to God for the incredible gift of his son to all who have united their faith with the incredible good news of the saving gospel through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, if you're not in his rest already, be diligent. Make haste. Move quickly. Don't drift. Enter his rest. How do you do that? By uniting your faith to his promises. Amen? I'm going to ask the men to come forward.